welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. A possible sweep by Democrats in the Georgia senatorial election. Such a win would give Democrats control over the U.S. Senate. Victory has already been declared for 51-year-old Raphael Warnock, who makes history as the first black senator from the southern state of Georgia. He narrowly defeated Kelly Loeffler. Loeffler was appointed to her seat by the governor of Georgia to fill a vacancy left by Johnny Isaacson, who resigned his Senate seat due to health reasons. Loeffler is an ardent Trump supporter and is one of the senators who today will challenge the election of Biden-Harris. And liberal Democrat John Ossoff maintains a narrow lead over Republican Trump supporter David Perdue. If he wins, John Ossoff will be the youngest senator to be seated since Joe Biden. He is also notably of Jewish descent. Are we witnessing a resurgence of black Jewish alliances reminiscent of the civil rights era? And what role did black voters play in the outcome? Our guest is Jill Cartwright, Georgia statewide organizer for Southerners for New Ground. All this as drama unfolds in Congress today as elected officials in both the House and Senate will attempt to stop the Electoral College certification of the Biden-Harris election. Donald Trump has made a phone call that may have been illegal to the Georgia um, Secretary of State pushing him to basically nullify the vote count there and instead give the Georgia presidential vote to him. Trump is also making the false claim that Vice President Pence has the power to nullify the Electoral College vote. But thus far, Pence has said to have explained to Trump that he does not have such power. Meanwhile, the streets of Washington, D.C. will be hot today, with thousands of Trump supporters descending on the nation's capital to demand that Trump remain president. Trump and other elected officials who stand with him are expected to speak to the crowd. Meanwhile, D.C.'s mayor has requested assistance from the National Guard. Law professor and attorney Marjorie Cohn joins us. And trouble in Los Angeles for the new district attorney, George Gascon. He was elected with the support of Black Lives Matter and other community-based organizations. He promised major criminal justice reforms and then proceeded to implement them, only to be met by resistance by Los Angeles County prosecutors who have filed a lawsuit against him. What's going on? For our ongoing Campaigners for Black Lives series, we speak with Dr. Melina Abdullah, founder and coordinator of Black Lives Matter LA. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated, so on Sojourner Truth. We work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. 
I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. One race has been called in Tuesday's Georgia Senate runoff election. Democrat Raphael Warnock defeated Republican Senator Kev- Kelly Leffler, while Democrat John Ossoff holds a slight lead in his race to unseat Republican Senator David Perdue. That race is still too close to call. Warnock is a pastor at Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church and will become the first black senator to be elected from Georgia. Warnock told supporters Tuesday in a video message that perseverance paid off. We were told that we couldn't win this election, but tonight we prove that with hope, hard work, and the people by our side, anything is possible. The focus now shifts to the second race between Purdue and Democrat John Ossoff, which will decide which party controls the U.S. Senate. Votes in that race are still being tallied. Congress is set to formally certify the results of the November presidential election today. However, President Trump continues to pursue his baseless claim that the election was fraudulent. Trump and his supporters have been pressuring Vice President Mike Pence to undo President-elect Biden's win. Pence will preside over a joint session of Congress today to certify each state's election results, but he has no legal authority to do anything other than read the results. Trump's Republican allies plan to object to the election results. Many say they're heeding the pleas of the president's supporters to fight for Trump. Trump is planning a rally outside the White House today. The long-shot effort is all but certain to fail. Bipartisan majorities in Congress are prepared to accept the results. Trump supporters are planning demonstrations in Washington today as well. Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser has activated the National Guard to help with security in the city. Hong Kong police have arrested dozens of former lawmakers and activists in the largest move against the city's pro-democracy movement since a strict national security law was imposed last June. They were accused of subverting state power by participating in unofficial election primaries for the territory's legislature last year. More from Feature Story News' Richard Kimba in Hong Kong. Hong Kong's opposition parties organized primaries in July to choose candidates ahead of the city's legislative elections. Primaries are not a formal part of Hong Kong's election process, but the parties believed it would maximize their chances of taking control of the legislature. At the time, Beijing declared the primaries illegal. Hong Kong's chief executive also warned any strategy to paralyze the government in the legislature might violate the national security law. On Wednesday morning, dozens of prominent activists and former opposition lawmakers involved in the primaries were arrested on subversion charges. Under the national security law, a conviction of subversion can carry a penalty of up to life in prison. The Hong Kong government eventually postponed its legislative election by a year, citing public health risks due to COVID-19. Opposition parties said it was a political move to prevent them from making significant gains. Richard Kimber in Hong Kong. A British judge has denied bail to WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who's been jailed in Britain since 2019 as he fights extradition to the United States. District Judge Vanessa Barrister today ordered Assange to remain in prison while the courts consider an appeal by U.S. authorities against a decision not to extradite him. On Monday, the judge rejected an American request to send Assange to the U.S. to face espionage charges over WikiLeaks' publication of secret military documents a decade ago. She denied extradition on health grounds. The judge said Assange would likely kill himself if held under harsh U.S. prison conditions. Assange was evicted from the Ecuadorian embassy in London in 2019 after spending seven years there avoiding extradition to Sweden on sexual assault charges. 
Sudan today said it signed the Abraham Accords with the U.S. That paves the way for the African country to normalize ties with Israel. A statement from the office of Sudan's Prime Minister said Justice Minister Nasreddin Abdul-Barbi signed the accord today with visiting U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. The recent U.S.-negotiated deals between Arab countries and Israel have been touted by Trump administration officials as a major foreign policy achievement. California public health officials issued an order on Tuesday that hospitals with room must accept patients from other hospitals that are out of intensive care beds. And as Christina Onestad reports, the order comes as coronavirus cases in the state continue to rage unchecked. Los Angeles County is the new ground zero of the pandemic as coronavirus infections continue to spike. Barbara Ferrer is L.A. County's Director of Public Health. In slightly more than one month, we doubled the number of people who tested positive for COVID-19, going from 400,000 cases on November 30th to 800,000 cases on January 2nd. 13,512 new infections were reported in the last 24 hours and 224 more deaths. Meanwhile, in San Francisco County, officials are reporting 237 new coronavirus infections each day. In all, there are more than 2.4 million people with the coronavirus in the state. More than 27,000 have died. I'm Christina Onestead, reporting for KPFA. And I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Now, we all eyes on the nation and indeed in many places around the world on Georgia, where it looks like a possible uh, sweep by Democrats. Um, And if that is the case, it means Democrats will have control of the U.S. Senate. Um, The Reverend Raphael Warnock declared victory in his race against Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler. The other Democrat, John Ossoff, holds on to a narrow lead over Republican David Perdue. Uh, Perdue's Senate term ended this past Sunday. As of the time we go on air, Ossoff currently has a 16,000-vote lead over Purdue. And if he maintains this lead, the 33-year-old would be the youngest newly elected Democratic senator since Joe Biden in 1973. Of course, uh, the Reverend Raphael Warnock will also be the first African-American Democratic senator from a former Confederate state. And the impact of black voters and the campaign for election rights led by former Representative Stacey Abrams, has a lot to do with the Democratic result. According to an Associated Press vote survey, black voters accounted for 32% of the electorate in the Georgia runoff races, a slight increase of 3% from the general election in November. The white share of the electorate declined by 4%. All of this comes after years of voter registration and get-out-the-vote efforts spearheaded by grassroots organizers and Stacey Abrams and her grassroots supporters. Uh, Abrams has also helped to lead the fight against voter suppression in Georgia, especially against communities of color. Uh, Let us go now uh, to a clip, and uh, let's go to the uh, clip from the CNN 
about the election. We heard you overnight noting the fact that your 82-year-old mother, whose hands mm -hmm. picked someone else's cotton, you said, got to cast her vote for her son to be senator from the state of Georgia. What was that moment like when the state was called for you? Good morning. Uh, listen, uh, this is a wonderful day uh, here in Georgia, and I believe in America. Uh, I am an iteration and an example of the American dream. I spoke to my mom last night. Uh, and um, when I think about the arc of our history, uh, what Georgia did last night is its own message in the midst of the moment in which so many people are trying to divide our country. At a time we can least afford to be divided, we've got big problems. And I'm deeply honored that the people of Georgia have placed their trust in someone who grew up in public housing, one of 12 children, I'm number 11, the first college graduate in my family. And I hope to bring the concerns of ordinary people to the United States Senate. Perhaps the distractor in chief is President Donald Trump, who did a lot in your state. He campaigned there, yes, but he also called to try to get the presidential results overturned in your state. What impact do you think he personally had on the election results? Oh, I'm sure others will, you know, look over that and, and talk about that. I'm, I'm really focused on the people of Georgia. And I think that's why they stood up and sent the message that they sent uh, last night. I mean, what happened last night is stunning. Uh, we flipped a state, and it took a lot of hands to do that. It's the result of giving people their voice, quite frankly. Over the last 10 years, I've worked with many others to register hundreds of thousands of new voters in this state. Those voters alongside others stood up last night, and they sent a clear message to Washington that uh, this is the people's democracy. Uh, you don't own it. If you have power, it's because we've extended it to you uh, mm -hmm. for a period of time. It is it is a kind of stewardship. It is a sacred trust. And it's one that I take very seriously. And and uh, I hope to honor that promise in the work that we will do in the days ahead. All righty. So let's welcome our guest. And of course, that was the voice of the uh, new senator, the Reverend Raphael Warnock. I'd like to welcome Jim. Jill Cartwright, who is the Georgia statewide organizer for Southerners on New Ground, or SONG. SONG serves as a home for LGBTQ liberation across all lines of race, class, abilities, age, culture, gender, and sexuality in the U.S. South. SONG works to build and maintain a Southern LGBTQ infrastructure for organizers strong enough to combat the Southern-specific strategy of the right to divide and conquer Southern oppressed communities using the tools of rural isolation, right-wing Christian infrastructure, racism, environmental degradation, and economic oppression. Jill Cartwright, welcome. Good morning, and thank you for having me on the show. Jill, I imagine it was a really long night uh, for you. But uh, let's uh, start off by giving your reaction to the election results thus far. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, everyone around the world, <laughs> or at least the nation, um, you know, heard when Warnock won his election, when it was called that he would be the victor in the race after holding a lead for 
most of the night. And so I think that this was pleasing for all of the organizers who have been on the ground talking to voters, as well as the rest of the nation, I'm sure, who's been anxiously watching what's been going on in Georgia. And also, at the same time, well-earned. I think that we worked really hard to be able to see a win like this, to be able to see, you know, a Democratic senator um, be able to go to Congress, to go to Washington. Um, And I think that we are expecting the same outcome with the race that still remains. Right. And tell us a bit about how you did it. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. I mean, this is a former Confederate state, right? And we have a black man elected as a, as a senator. We have a young Jewish man um, now uh, in the lead. And um, it is, as I said in my intro, somewhat reminiscent of the Black-Jewish um, collaboration that happened during the civil rights era with uh, some who were killed uh, even uh, during that era fighting for these very rights, including uh, the right to vote. But tell us a bit about the operation on the ground for Georgia for the uh, Southerners for New Ground, but also other grassroots organizers. Uh, A lot of credit being given, rightly so, to uh, Stacey Abrams. But we also know that she had, uh, to use that militaristic term, there was an army of grassroots organizers, a lot of, of the young people and a lot of people in the black community involved in this effort. Tell us about that. Right, right. Um, all of that is true. And I think that the interracial collaboration that you saw, uh, specifically between Wanaka and Ossoff, was definitely reflected on the ground. Um, Song is a multiracial organization intentionally because we believe that those sorts of alliances and collaboration is necessary for us to achieve liberation for our people. And so our organizing on the ground reflected that. Um, And in terms of how we did it, I think that it was true (laughs) bread and butter organizing that was able to get us to this point and also to get us to um, split the state in the presidential election, in the federal election. Um, I think that it also was a long-term um, sort of effort, though. It definitely was not an overnight success. Um, and Stacey Abrams' leadership was critical, and she's such a visionary and someone who has made a lasting impact on Georgia, an indelible impact on the state, and at the same time is a product of a movement um, in this state that has existed for decades. And that movement is filled with black women. It's filled with Latino voters and organizers. It's filled with LGBTQ people of all races and ages and abilities. And that movement continues to exist even beyond this election when we get the, when we get the electoral victory that we're looking for in the Senate. And I say that because these, we actually see this win as part of a greater sort of image, a greater mosaic of wins and progressive movements that we've been seeing in Georgia for some time. And so this is something that obviously we've prayed for for a long time. We've, you know, worked hard, sweat on our brow to be able to get here. 
but you can't look at this within the silo of just the election. I would actually do a disservice to the great upswell of organizing work that has been done on the ground. And this was only made possible by that kind of coalitional um, multi-pronged effort. And so organizations, many of the organizations that have worked to help reach um, the millions of voters in Georgia um, are also organizations that, like Song, like Song, for instance, that also not only just do electoral work, but also work within our communities to be able to build long-term solutions and long-term change um, to the kind of issues that we are hoping to send these politicians to the Senate for, to be able to advocate on our behalf. Um, that includes things like mutual aid. Like one of the biggest um, talking points in this election was COVID relief. And so many of the people that we talked to at Song Power, for instance, were uh, very concerned about COVID relief. Like that was the number one issue by far. And we also know at the same time that that, you know, at the same time, even if we win this election, that COVID relief doesn't come immediately. But we can also at the same time begin to build the sort of infrastructure and relationships, build on the relationships that we have so that our neighborhoods and communities can start to find those solutions as well within themselves. And so it's sort of like a dual prong where our focus and our only victory can't be sending Democrats to the Senate to represent Georgia, but we also have to have a bigger picture that includes more than just people who have the ability to vote and people who have the, the ability to go to the ballot box, but people who are affected by what happens regardless. Um, and so when you have that big picture sort of vision that is grounded in community-based organizing with organizations from Georgia that have the relationships already, and we can just sort of tap on our neighbors and tap on our people, you know, to mobilize on a day like Election Day, then that's, that's a recipe for victory. Right, absolutely. Well said. And you talked about and on issues, right, that uh, got the attention of, of voters and, and black voters in particular. The black vote had a lot to do with this win. You mentioned COVID uh, relief and uh, mutual aid kinds of efforts. Were there other issues also that you you and other organizations, grassroots organizations, tended to focus on to pull out the vote, including pulling out the vote of low propensity voters, the voters who don't often, you know, come out, particularly in an election that's not a presidential election. Right. You know. And so, yeah, yeah. Um, the issues that we saw, I think, from the voters that we polled um, and that we were able to talk to in our conversations on the ground, I think are, are pretty reasonable issues that you might expect. So, of course, COVID relief was, excuse me, was number one um, by far. Like, if we were talking, you know, a percentage system, like COVID relief would be 20 points ahead of any other issue in terms of how adamant people were about the urgency of getting real um, emergency aid. Um, and that showed in the, way, the number of people that we saw 
turning out for the first time, like you said, the number of people who came out to vote after a long period of, of being inactive and also by people who, like, there were a couple conversations, a couple stories I heard of canvassers being like they talked to somebody who, you know, vote who actually changed, um, who wasn't normally vote like a, a blue voter, but actually decided to make that change because they so desperately needed that COVID relief. And so that was definitely the number is, number one issue for our voters. Um, in addition to that, though, um, right up after that was uh, a desire for systemic racial injustice to be addressed. And, you know, we all heard about or participated in or watched or studied the uprisings that happened last summer um, after the murder of George Floyd. We also all, you know, experienced the different responses that happened mostly on the local level um, to, you know, mayors and chiefs of police and city council people um, trying to figure out how to solve and address some of the issues of racial injustice that had been raised over the summer and beyond. And we saw community organizers activating over these issues as well. And so the impact, I think, of those uprisings and of that moment in history has yet to be fully determined. We can't say yet what the full impact of that historic uprising will be, a historic movement. But so far in this election, we're seeing that public opinion about racial injustice, at least right now, has shifted towards wanting to see some real action, wanting to put people in office who are not only going to give lip service to the kinds of issues that Black people in particular and people of color broadly are facing across the nation, but people who are going to put put some things to action and actually make address and make real changes. Um, and I think that obviously with the large number of black voters who were uh, participating in this election and turning out for this election, obviously this it's safe to say that that issue resonates well with them. And the last issue that was really important to our voters, which I find really interesting, especially as a state-based organizer, is health care and more, more particularly rural health care. Um, and that issue in particular is one that I think is speaks more to the local conditions in Georgia, um, which I think a lot in, in this election, for obvious reasons, was not as talked about. Like the lo sort of local conditions in Georgia um, were kind of subverted for, you know, obviously high-profile national stakes of these elections. But at the end of the day, these senators are still representing Georgia and the needs of our people here. And rural health care has suffered as a result of rollbacks on funding, um, attempts to close hospitals and successful attempts to close hospitals um, and remove funding and programs from rural areas. And Georgia, as some might not know, has a black belt in central Georgia that's primarily rural. Um, and it's our black belt because that's where 
where like counties uh, exist that have more than 70% on average, 70% black or more. And so with those being primarily black rural counties um, and then the effects of this pandemic coming in, you can see why the majority of people who, who died from COVID in Georgia were black people. Um, and so that was a really, the, that black belt was hard, very hard hit by the, the COVID-19 pandemic and specifically Albany, Georgia, which is a rural Southern Georgia um, city at one point rivaled New York. It, had the, it definitely at one point had the number one um, number of deaths in the world per capita. Um, and so we're also seeing rural, not just rural voters who got a little bit more shine than they usually do in elections, um, in this election, but also just in general, black rural dwellers are also saying, like, we we know what's best for us and we know that we matter and we exist and we, we, we're demanding that someone represent our, our experience on the national level. Right. That's interesting that you made that point. And of course, Albany, Georgia uh, had played a very historic role in the civil rights era with the, with the Albany movement and the, the civil disobedience that took place there uh, by uh, black people. But um, you're right to underscore the rural and small town counties across uh, South uh, Georgia, because that's the place where black turnout has historically lagged. But that wasn't the case. I mean, it wasn't just metropolitan uh, Atlanta, um, which also includes some affluent uh, black residents in, in Atlanta, but also uh, black Georgia natives from the most economically depressed pockets of the state. Um, we're going to need to have you back because there's a lot to unpack here. Um, but before you go, I just uh, wanted, one, I wanted to discuss, for example, the role that women uh, played in all of this. You mentioned black women uh, earlier, but generally, um, the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, they have a fusion approach um, to politics. I mean, bring it, they're multiracial, and they also address the issues of systemic racism, of, of poverty, the war economy, ecological devastation, the distorted moral narrative. And earlier, you, you spoke about your organization's song and the importance of um, that you made a conscious decision to do interracial organizing because you think that this is important um, and needed for the liberation of our people. And like me, like you, I'm also of, of African descent. Just tell us a little bit of, about that within the context of the history of, of Georgia and including the collaborations that happened during the civil rights era and this race between Warnock, who, a preacher at Martin Luther King's church, and also a young Jewish man, somehow seemed to reflect. Uh, just some final thoughts on all this. Jill. Right. I think that, you know, the kind of work that Song is doing and our nature as a multiracial LGBTQ organization is grounded in that history, not just of the civil rights movement, and the collaborations that happened in that movement, the solidarity that happened in that movement, but also from many other movements that um, are part of our the, the radical tradition. Um, at every level, when you look at the history of civil rights movements 
and movements for liberation in the United States at the very least. Um, you see these sort of collaborations and this recognition that our victory and the rights that we are looking to achieve, the dignity and self-determination that we're fighting for needs to be led by us. We are experts on what we need and experts on our lives. But at the same time, we can't do it alone. And you see that in the civil rights movement with the Black Jewish collaboration there. You also see it in the Black Power movement. Even the Black Panthers collaborated with the Young Lords and the Asian American movement and so many others, and even poor white organizers, to be able to create a coalition of people who could bring all different sides of the story, all different struggles to the table and figure out how can we, what is our common denominator? What is our common enemy that we're trying to attack? And how can we combine forces against it? Um, and so we see, we're taught by many of our elders and ancestors before us who were organizers and freedom fighters that this is the way, that this is this collaboration across lines of race and disability and age and sexuality and gender are inevitable. They're necessary. You can't, you can't get around it if you're trying to get towards a complete vision of liberation. And so in song, we try to build on that history. Now, of course, we still have, you know, the organizations and the projects and groups that are very particularly um, based on one segment of the movement for liberation, whether it be um, Black-led organizations in this current um, movement of the left, whether it be Black members within song or um, Latinx members in song who are gathering Asian members within song. We have, you know, we're multiracial, so we have we do give those spaces for our different um our folks who are of different identities to be able and not just race but to be able to practice that self-determination and be able to be right. in community with the people who have the same experience that they do but at the at the end of the day the goal is always that collaboration and i think that it works and we're seeing it work with the outcome of this election so far, and also in our our liberation movement, like Black voters were a very critical piece in this election. If I can go back to talking, if I can, you know, bring that back, Black voters were a very critical piece. Forty percent of the thousands of new voters that voted in this election were Black voters, and that will that will continue to be the case in in his southern state, and particularly in Georgia. But we also saw that our partners, Song's partners and um, allies also showed out um, in this election in a way that helped deliver the win and that we couldn't have, that we can't win without um, Mi Gente, an organization as well that has been in Georgia for a couple of years, was able to pull off the largest Latino Hispanic voter outreach campaign ever in Georgia. They reached every single Latino voter in Georgia. And that was like, that was the, that could have been the difference. Like we, that was the difference between winning and losing. 
Um, right. We saw, even within Song, we focused on black voters in a number of counties, but we also reached out to white rural voters, thousands and thousands of white rural voters in our outreach in order to be able to contact them and actually be able to know like what they're what they're thinking about and where they're leaning and if we can't push them to vote blue in this election. And so we saw that kind of collaboration um, at every level and it it speaks to victory. It speaks to a winning strategy. Absolutely. Well, on that note, uh, Jill Cartwright, we are going to have to leave it there, but we would love to have you back and unpack a bit more because you, you really said quite a lot here and really vital information that I'm sure people involved in uh, social change movements everywhere uh, will want to know more about your experience and what you've been able to build uh, in that former Confederate state of Georgia. Jill Cartwright, thank you so very much for joining us and congratulations to all of you for all of your work meaning so much for so many of us. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All righty. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a short station break. And coming up, um, our Campaigners for Black Lives ongoing series, Dr. Melina Abdullah, waiting to speak with us. What's going on with the attacks against the new district attorney um, of Los Angeles? And also Marjorie Cohn about the shenanigans uh, happening with a continued attempt at a coup by Donald Trump and his supporters. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Midnight train to Georgia. There are going to be a lot of songs about Georgia people are going to be paying some attention to today. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. You're a member of Facebook. You can like and friend us on Facebook. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org. We have an incredible community calendar, lots of stories and, and videos um, that you might not see otherwise. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio, and we're also nationwide and sound cla- um, on SoundCloud. And today in the United States, I'd like to give a shout out to our listeners and all of our friends in Southern Illinois, in Southern Illinois, and internationally, uh, I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Indonesia. Indonesia. So right now we are going to now uh, turn our attention to our campaigners uh, for Black uh, Lives uh, series and find out a bit more about what the heck is going on in Los Angeles with this new liberal district attorney, um, Gascon, George Gascon, who is now uh, being sued by the L.A. County Prosecutors Union. Let's go to a short clip from ABC News on that. And the union representing L.A. County prosecutors has filed a civil lawsuit challenging their own boss and his new directives. The suit alleges that newly elected District Attorney George Gascon has issued special directives that are both radical 
and unlawful. The Association of Deputy District Attorneys says directives to eliminate three strikes allegations and some sentencing enhancements violate state law. Gascon says the directives enhance safety in the county and reduce levels of mass incarceration. His office releasing this statement saying, despite today's legal challenge, I believe a collaborative path exists to achieve these goals based on what research shows, what voters want, and what L.A. County deserves. All righty, and now let's uh, get some reaction and welcome our guest, uh, Dr. Melina Abdullah, professor, author, community organizer in Los Angeles, professor and former chair of the Pan-African Studies uh, Department at Cal State University, Los Angeles. She's also a founder and a, a coordinator of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. Uh, Dr. Melina Abdullah, welcome. Thank you for having me, Margaret. Happy New Year. And, and also to you, all the best to you and, and your family. And so, Melina, Black Lives Matter LA had a massive victory in uh, getting rid of Jackie Lacey, <laughs> the DA that you all picketed every week, I think for like two or three years, something like that, and supported this new district attorney, George Gascon. So what is going on now? Um, people are even now protesting against him. There's a lawsuit against him. Why? What's happening? And what, what is the, the concerns of Black Lives Matter LA? So, yes, we organized for more than three years to oust District Attorney Jackie Lacey, who was absolutely upholding a system, um, a criminal legal system that um, disproportionately oppressed black folks, brown folks, poor folks, refused to prosecute the police who kill our people. There were 628 people killed by police while she was in office and she refused to prosecute in any of those cases. Black Lives Matter doesn't endorse candidates, so we didn't endorse George Gascon. But the progressive justice reforms that he has ushered in, that he has pledged to uphold, um, as early as his swearing in he rolls them out, are absolutely grounded in the work that we do and in the work that community organizers, the families of victims of police killings, and um, community members um, far and wide, especially in black, brown, and poor communities, have been advocating for four decades. So we have to be very clear that these progressive justice reforms, the end to cash bail for misdemeanors and nonviolent offenses, um, the stop of the use of the death penalty, which is only being used against people of color, um, the end to, of the transfer of young people to adult courts, the end of the use of sentencing enhancements, and um, ending all enhancements um, except for a few, like um, hate crime enhancements, um, retroactively are all things that we have called for, as well as the reopening of cases of police who've killed our people. And so we're um, very optimistic about what George Gascon's leadership means. And to be clear, these pushbacks against Gascon are not coming from the people. They're not coming from community. They're not even coming from um, crime survivors, they are coming from police associations that like to pretend that they're unions. They are coming from old school kind of lock them up deputy district attorneys who want to um, advance 
you know, continue to advance a white supremacist criminal legal system. And so this is really the people versus oppressive policing and oppressive um, uh, prosecutors. Right. And, uh, you know, one has to wonder if the new DA, you know, feeling the pressure, apparently on New Year's Eve, he sent a message uh, to deputies, I mean, seeking unity, you know, referring to them as, as dear colleagues. But they weren't having any of it, <laughs> um, apparently, and they're going to continue to move forward. So, uh, do, are you? I know. Have you all met with uh, the new DA, and uh, and are you thinking that he may very well buckle under this kind of pressure, Melina um, Abdullah? Well, we have met with him several times, both before he was sworn in and after, and. He is grounded in community. This is absolutely the most connected we've been to almost any elected official um, in memory. And um, so he has met with us. He continues to say that Black Lives Matter and organizers with organizations like the ACLU, National Lawyers Guild, um, and many other progressive groups, um, Black Jewish Justice Alliance, um, will always have a seat at the table. This is the first time that that's happened. So we have met with him, and I think it's imperative, just as we hold elected officials accountable, that when elected officials are doing what we're calling for them to do, that we stand alongside them and flank them. And so we actually have an open letter that um, almost 5,000 people have already signed. We're asking everyone to sign on. Um, that's available at tinyurl.com slash standwithgeorge, standwithgeorge, tinyurl.com slash standwithgeorge. We're also going to be doing a Twitter storm tomorrow um, that says that these are our progressive reforms, and we're um, appreciative that George Gascon, as the new district attorney, has decided to pick up the community demands, but these are our demands. And so we're standing with him, but we need to also embrace these as our demands. And so we'll stand with George Gascon because he's standing with the community. And if he ever, you know, parts ways with us, we'll hold him accountable. But right now he's doing even more than we imagined that a district attorney would do. So we're very optimistic and hopeful about what this new district attorney will usher in for real justice for black people and all oppressed people. Right, and people were very hopeful in Philadelphia. Lynn Krasner, also a liberal um, district attorney, was elected there. And I, we're, we're out of time, uh, Melina, but just all of this happening as the officers involved in the shooting of Jacob Blake once again let off the hook. Uh, relatively new uh, police shootings of, of black men in Ohio, and again, uh, nothing happening there. So it, it just seems to go on and on and on. So we appreciate you and, and the work of uh, Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter LA in particular. You thank, we thank you for partnering with us for our ongoing campaign as the Black Lives Series. Thank you for joining thank us. Thank you so much, Sister Margaret. And we hope everybody will plug into the work. Right. Okay. And uh, we are now going to uh, wrap our show up looking at, wow, uh, history, perhaps, uh, taking place in Washington, D.C. today. Uh, today 
is the day that the Electoral College um, vote is to be accepted in Congress, uh, verifying the election of Joe Biden as president-elect of the United States and um, Kamala Harris as, as vice president. But you have a number of members of both the House and the Senate that intend to try to block that happening, and Donald Trump has been putting pressure on Vice President Mike Pence, who has a ceremonial role in all of this, to somehow stop it, not to mention the, the call that a lot of people are saying may be illegal that he made to the Georgia Secretary of State, pushing him to give Trump the, uh, the win there, as opposed to Biden. And here to break all of this down for us and give us um, her thoughts and, and reaction is Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, where she taught for 25 years. She's the former president of the National Lawyers Guild, criminal defense attorney, legal scholar, political analyst, writes uh, quite a lot of, of books or columns, appear in Truth Out, um, the Huffington Post, Truth Dig, and others. She's been on BBC, MSNBC, CNN, CBS, and others. So, Marjorie Cohn, we're happy to have you. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Margaret. Uh, first of all, just explain to our listeners what is supposed to happen um, in Congress today with around the uh, certification of uh, Biden-Harris. And uh, then <laughs> your reaction to the plans by people who want to subvert those efforts. Well, the 12th Amendment to the Constitution is very clear that the vice president shall open the certificates and the votes shall then be counted. He doesn't have the ability to reject electors' votes on, on his own. He doesn't have the ability to raise his own objections to the outcome. And yet Trump has been pressuring um, Pence to reject the votes, the Biden electoral votes. And uh, Trump has said, I hope Mike Pence comes through for us. I have to tell you, of course, if he doesn't come through, I won't like him as much. And Pence, uh, Pence's aides have said that he won't deviate from his duties in counting the electoral votes. Um, he'll follow the law and the Constitution. So what happens is that um, there are two mahogany boxes with the electoral votes. The tellers will read them, they'll tally them, and then Pence, the vice president, will announce the tally for each state. And if one member of the House and one member of the Senate object to that tally, the tally for Biden, then the House and the Senate recess and debate for two hours and vote. And a majority of the House and a majority of the Senate have to agree with the objection to the Biden electors in order for uh, anything to change. That's not going to happen. The House is in Democratic hands, and I don't even think that a majority of the senators would vote um, to sustain an objection to the Biden electors. So um, 12 or 13 senators have announced that they're going to object um, to, I think, three of the state tallies for Biden. Texas, uh, Ted Cruz is going to object to Texas electors, Hawley to Arizona electors, and Leffler, uh, the outgoing senator, um, to the Georgia electors. And the House members, more than 100 House members who are, um, are uh, aiding and abetting Trump's illegal coup attempt, 
um, are going to reportedly object to up to the, the tallies of up to six states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Wisconsin. Um, but both mem- a member of both the Senate and the House have to object to a state uh, elector to have the recess and the vote. And this will happen for the, the recess for two hours and the debate and the vote in the, both houses of Congress will happen um, after objections from both a House member and a senator member to each state. So the, Arizona will be first. Um, there'll be an objection to Arizona, clearly by both a senator and a House member, and then they will um, adjourn for two hours, um, <clears throat> and then so forth and so on. Now, um, reportedly, GOP uh, slates for Trump have been sent to Pence's office um, objecting to the Biden electors and, you know, putting forth Trump slates in Arizona, Georgia, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, and Nevada. Will Pence bring that up um, on his own? Probably not. Um, and once the vote for each state is announced, that makes it official. That means Biden has officially won the electors in that state. So we're going to see a lot of theater today, Margaret, But the and it could go, you know, if we have enough states objected to by both House and Senate uh, members, then it could go into uh, the late hours. But Joe Biden will end up the president-elect at the end of the day. And, of course, meanwhile, um, the uh, Trump goons and paramilitaries are, um, are in the streets uh, causing wreaking havoc. Right. And apparently Trump is supposed to uh, address the, that crowd as well as uh, some of the uh, 13 uh, senators, likely some of the, the House uh, members uh, as well. Some Republicans have broken um, with uh, Trump on, on all of this, so we'll see how all of it plays out. But the other thing, uh, Marjorie Cohn, to comment on is a lot of people are, are, were alarmed um, hearing about and then even listening to the transcript of the phone call that uh, Trump made to Republican uh, uh, Rastenberger, Berger, the Georgia Secretary of State. Now, there's some debate going on as to whether what he did was legal or not. Do you have any thoughts on that? I certainly do, and it was not legal. Um, Trump told Raffsenberger to find 11,780 votes for him. That, of course, would put him exactly one vote ahead of Biden. Um, and, uh, and Trump says... Uh, Trump, Trump says that Raffsenberger was unwilling or unable to answer questions such as ballots under the table scam, ballot destruction, out-of-state voters, dead voters. Um, it, this, is, this is like a mafioso. Find me the votes. Clearly illegal. Under 52 U.S. Code 20511, it's a violation of federal law, and you can go to prison if you knowingly and willfully deprive, defraud, or attempt to deprive or defraud the residents of a state of a fair and impartially conducted election process by the procurement, casting, or tabulation of ballots that are known by the person to be materially false, fictitious, or fraudulent 
under the laws of the state. So it is clearly illegal. Now, of course, Trump could say, I didn't know. I didn't have the uh, the criminal intent. And, you know, he does believe his lies. Um, so it, that would have to be proved to a jury. But under that's federal law. Under Georgia law, it's a crime for anyone to solicit, request, or command someone else to engage in election fraud. Clearly, that's what he did. And two Democrats in the House... Ted Liu from from California and Kathleen Rice from New York have asked the head of the FBI, Ray, to open an immediate criminal investigation into Trump. And they said, as members of Congress and former prosecutors, we believe Donald Trump engaged in solicitation of or conspiracy to commit a number of election crimes. We ask you to open an immediate criminal investigation into the president. Yeah, and, and just very quickly, I mean, interestingly, James Comey, former head of the FBI that Trump fired, he has now come out and said, well, you shouldn't really go after trying to uh, prosecute Trump. And there's a lot of talk about we want to look forward. We don't want to, you know, look backward, et cetera. Um, so just your final thoughts on this, because the he did have an attorney, this Cleta Mitchell, who resigned from her law firm on Tuesday, a Republican attorney. Um, so, you know, he had legal advice in, in making this call. Uh, so just uh, final thoughts from you, and then clearly we're going to need to pick up this conversation again with you after all of this happens uh, today. And some people are thinking it may run into tomorrow. Uh, Marjorie Cohn, your fi- final thoughts, please. Well, looking forward, not backward, is a mistake that Obama made right as he was starting his first term when he was asked about whether he was going to ensure that the torturers, and there were lots of them all the way up, uh, the, the, uh, the, the government during the Bush administration that tortured and abused prisoners illegally, constituting war crimes. Um, and he said, well, yes, some people might have committed some crimes, uh, maybe he's tortured some folks, but we want to look forward, not backward. That was a big mistake, because what happens then is that the next president um, has completed uh, impunity to break the law, knowing that there will be no consequences. And whereas Trump can pardon himself for, uh, for federal crimes that he committed during his presidency, um, he cannot pardon himself for state crimes, and there are state prosecutors who are um, going to already investigating him. And yeah. so I think that it's very counterproductive to Joe, for Joe Biden to follow what Obama did and discourage his uh, Department of Justice from bringing Trump to justice, regardless of whether Trump had legal and so-called legal advice or not. He has broken the law over and over and over, and the most, I don't even know if it's the most outrageous, but it could be the most outrageous, this phone call with Rafsenberger. It reminds me of the Ukraine phone call for which he was impeached, actually. Um, clearly illegal, and he should be brought to justice. On that note, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so very much for joining us for your expertise, breaking this down for us. Marjorie Cohn, thank you. All righty. Um, I'd like to thank all of today's guests. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our Sojourner Truth uh, team, our assistant producer, Romero uh, Funes, and our engineer, Kiana Williams. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at one 800 7350 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Y'all, please stay safe. Just an old sweet song 
keeps Georgia on my mind. 